So last week, or well, now for a few months, we have been looking at the attributes of God. And to me, it is vital that we understand who God is, we understand the holiness of God. And one of the comments that we have made repeatedly is this. If you have a low view of God, you will have a low view of doctrine. You will have a low view of the church. You will have a low view of God's will for your life, and you will have a high view of yourself. If you have a low view of yourself, you will have a high view of God, a high view of doctrine, and a high view of the church. And that's important because last week as we were considering um, how, or considering the holiness of God, considering the foreknowledge of God or how God looks down through time and sees things, there are a lot of people who are, that misunderstand or do not give credit where credit is due when it comes to understanding the truth of Scripture. There are many who deny the absolute sovereignty of God within the salvation of sinners or, in fact, in, in, in any of those areas. And we find within the church often that there are what we term theological and ecclesiastical battles. That simply means theology, of course, the study of theology or the proper study of God. And ecclesiastical simply refers to the church. So we have battles. And we started talking about some of these doctrines last week, and we want to continue with that this morning. So when we were talking, and I encourage you to take notes. Uh, there are, uh, there's pieces of paper there. If you want some paper, I'm sure we can get some for you as well. But I want to encourage you because as 1 Peter 3.15 says, that we are to be ready to always to give an answer to everyone who asks us of the reason of the hope that is within us, but to do so with meekness and fear. So the question is, what do we believe? This is the question that we started off with last week. What do we believe? And of course, we broke this down into what our primary or secondary, and we really didn't get very far on these, but we want to Try to break this down a little bit further for you today. And tertiary or third level. So you can think of this as one, two, and three. Levels of doctrine. Last week we considered a few of the first or the primary doctrines would be things like the virgin birth. The deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are things that if you're, if, if we have... Let's, let's consider it this way. There is a word that is found within much of evangelicalism today, and it's called ecumenicalism. Does anybody know what that word means? Besides Brother Mickey and my dad. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Ecumenicalism basically is the holding hands with other religions, breaking down any walls or barriers that stand between us for the sake of simply loving God. For example, and we've used this example, or we have actually used this example of this illustration before. How many of you have ever been to a crusade, like a Billy Graham crusade or something like that? Anybody ever? Have you, did you ever get a chance to go to one? Okay, so... You, you've been to one, okay? Now, there's one thing that I'm sure that we could all agree on. Anybody here ever heard a message by Billy Graham? Yeah. 
Okay, so you can find them online, YouTube, whatever. There's one thing that you can say about Billy Graham. When he stood up and he gave the gospel message, it was always about Jesus Christ. Now, that's a wonderful truth because there are a lot of people who don't even preach the word of God. They don't even preach about Jesus Christ. But when the problem was the Billy Graham Association that followed up with that, for example, when he came to England in, you remember when it was? Billy Graham's been gone since last year. At any rate, when Billy Graham came to England, here's what he did. They invited all the churches without any exceptions in the area. Okay? The Unitarians got invited, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Baptists, the Bible churches, the Anglican churches, the Catholic churches, all got invited to come to the Billy Graham Crusade. And here's what the Billy Graham Association said. When, let's say Brother Doug is there and Brother Doug comes up, uh, he's sitting there in this great big stadium and he hears the message and Billy Graham gives the the invitation to come forward and, and accept Christ or come down and make a decision, Doug would come down to the front and they would ask him, the first question that they would ask him was this, what church do you belong to or do you associate with? And Doug says, well, you know, I was baptized a Catholic. So standing standing over here in the corner is Father Jones. Father Jones is not even a believer because the system that he falls under is a false religion. And so Doug is sent over and they say, well, we're going to send you over here to talk to Father Jones. And he will help you to be able to make a decision for Christ. What is Father Jones going to tell Doug to do this coming Sunday? Baptize, go to Mass, mass, pay tithe, tithe, confession, whatever it may be. And so he has gone and he has heard this message, the message of salvation. He comes down and he makes this decision that he thinks is for Christ. Has anything changed with Doug? Unfortunately not. Because what Doug, Doug walks away trusting in what the church over here in the corner has told him he needs to do in order to have a right relationship with God. Thus undermining everything that he's just heard in the message. This is ecumenicalism. Ecumenicalism is found, for example, if you go to... Uh, take your pick of just about any one of the Christian radio stations, you will find all kinds of music that is a reference to ecumenicalism. In other words, let's break down the walls, let's break down the barriers so we can all sing, hold hands and sing Kumbaya together. But there is a problem because doctrine is important. There are a lot of churches that say, oh, doctrine's not that important. We don't get into all that doctrinal stuff. We don't talk about things like hell and judgment and whatever it may be. Joel Osteen is a classic example. Joel Osteen has made it clear that he will not preach on hell in his church. He will not preach on judgment. He will not preach on sin. Why? Because it is convicting. And it's hard to preach on those things if you don't believe it yourself. 
So in, within ecumenicalism, we're going to go ahead and take this off here now. So we've got three different levels of doctrine. So the first doctrine that we considered, of course, was the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the Trinity. But the question that we asked, and Brother uh, Al uh, helped us with this one last week, and that is this. Do you have to believe these things in order to be saved? No. No. Because it doesn't say, the Bible doesn't say, doesn't give a list of all the doctrines that you have to believe. But once you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens then in your life? Begin to learn, get changed. And as you go to church, and Holy Spirit guides you in all truth. So you understand these things, so you can't remain. For example... On my dad's side, there are several who are still within the Catholic Roman Catholic system. We do not hate people who are Roman Catholics. We hate a system that they are trapped in that tells them that they can go to purgatory in order to be able to pay for their sins. We hate that they go to a, 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 to a church service where the priest holds up the bread and the wine and says, this is literally actually the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a plate that is put underneath the person that is partaking of it so we don't drop Jesus on the floor. Right. You see, these are the things that we are concerned about when we're talking about doctrine. So while we do not believe that these are doctrines that we must believe or that we must come to believe before we can come to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we do believe that they are primary doctrines. For example, a primary doctrine is something that would be, we're going to use this word here, salvific. Salvific simply means pertaining to salvation. In other words, if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, can you be a true believer? No, you cannot. Jesus is God. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And we cannot come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if we do not understand or come to the point where we understand this. You can't say that Jesus was just a good man or he was just a prophet. He wasn't the brother of Lucifer as the Mormons teach, for example, the LDS church teaches that he was a brother with Lucifer. Lucifer and Jesus Christ came up with different plans of salvation. God the Father rolled the dice and decided to accept the plan of salvation from Jesus. Lucifer gets upset and he, go, he falls, gets pride in his heart, falls down to earth. And then somewhere down the road, Jesus Christ is going to have to be born. So within the LDS system, they believe that Father God actually literally came down to earth and had incestuous relationship with his own daughter, Mary, spirit daughter, Mary, in order for Jesus to be born. That is heresy. Yes. So here's the question then. Do we believe that Mormons are Christians? No, no they're not. The, these things are primary teachings. These are salvific doctrines. Okay? What might be something that is not a salvific doctrine, but might fall under a second or third level position? Somebody help me out here. Good, good one. Yeah, a couple of you said it at the same time. 
So, are there people who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have never been baptized? Yes. yes. Absolutely. Are there people who are going to be in heaven who were never baptized? Yes. We Abs- know, we know one. Yeah, exactly. There's at least one, the thief on the cross. Yes, we know one. So if baptism is a secondary issue, this simply means that we can agree to disagree. But would we have somebody come and teach or to fill the pulpit as a Baptist church if they did not believe in baptism by immersion? In our pulpit, so would we have somebody come and teach or bat or, or 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 preach from the pulpit who does not believe we be in a Baptist church who does not believe in baptism by immersion? I would say no. No, you're correct. Because it's not if we're gonna if we're gonna have church doctrine, we have to support it. If somebody not supporting that come in and talk. You know, that's not right. Here's where we're going to use another word. What you find all these big words? Yeah. <laughs> fellowship. Oh, fellowship. Oh. This one's real easy. Two think... fellows in the same ship. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> fellowship. Two fellows in the same ship. Yeah, okay. So here's, here's where the secondary one comes in. Can we go down to the coffee shop or have somebody over to our house for dinner who doesn't believe in baptism by immersion? Yes. Not for salvation, okay? Because if we say that baptism is necessary for salvation, baptism of regeneration, what have we done? We've made it a primary issue. So we can't fellowship with that person. We can't have them come and teach in our churches or, 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 or preach in our churches something that is contrary to what we believe the scripture tells us. Now, unfortunately, when we go back over to this word that we had over here, ecumenicalism, you will find a lot of churches that will say, oh, that's not important. Uh, there's, a, there's a pastor's group here in, uh, here in Cheyenne and they meet and there's probably eight, nine, ten different denominations that are represented until I found out that, that there is, uh, there's at least three of them do, that do not believe, three of the pastors, three of the churches that have come and are represented, that do not believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They believe that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Can we truly have fellowship with somebody like that? No. Because if we have somebody in our congregation... And they are not, a, and they are a believer, but they haven't come to faith in the Lord Jesus, or they haven't been baptized yet. These pastors would tell you that that person, if they die today, is going to go to hell. They've made it a primary doctrine. So when we're talking about fellowship, a person who believes, for example, how many different types of baptism are there? This might blow your mind. Too, too basic, but. Okay, what, what are they? Immersion and sprinkle. Okay, immersion, sprinkling. Can you use a spray bottle these days? <laughs> yeah, water hose. Okay, one more. There's, there's one more. Okay, it's effusion. It's like your veins? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. 
These are the three main types, and this is normally only found amongst like the Mennonite, uh, some of the Amish or Hutterite brethren, some of the Eastern Orthodox churches hold to this one. It basically means instead of sprinkling, we pour water over you. So effusion simply is pouring on top of the person's head. Um, and some of them do it a little bit different. Sometimes they pour in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. So they actually do it three times. There are actually some Baptist churches that baptize in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. They baptize three times. But it's actually by immersion. We, we have, um, I know my dad and I have talked about this quite a bit in the past, and I don't want to get into a big discussion right now about baptism itself or the modes of baptism, but what is baptism? If it's not for salvation, it's for what? It's for testimony's sake, okay? So if a person, if a person comes in and they said, well, we come from, let's say, Hutterite Brethren or Mennonite, uh, can somebody come from, from that and believe in salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone? Yeah, absolutely. So because they disagree, here's an example. When my dad was pastoring in England and when we went back to pastor in England, we had people who used to come from the Anglican church regularly who would come and they would get saved. But because they had been sprinkled or baptized as an infant, you could not convince them for any reason that baptism by immersion was important because they believed that their baptism that they had had when they were little was sufficient for them. Now, we're not talking about a salvific issue here, okay? We're talking about fellowship. So again, with a secondary issue, I can agree to disagree with people and still have fellowship with them. We can agree to disagree on a secondary issue and still have somebody who would be willing to come in and maybe teach like a missionary or, or, or somebody like that who disagrees, and I'm not talking about baptism because we are a Baptist church, but there are some doctrines that I believe would fall into that. Now, there's a third one. Tertiary. What, would, what do you think might be a third level doctrinal position? One that is not salvific, one that is not a matter of fellowship, but one that we can agree to disagree um, and maybe even have people within the same congregation who are members who disagree on those issues. Okay, so a, a second filling, that would be, and it depends because you've got a number of great, you've got Elam Pentecostal, you've got uh, various charismatic groups. Um, the problem is whether I would want to question that person as to why they believe in a second filling. Why do they see it as a necessity? In other words, there are many of those groups who believe that the second filling gives evidence of salvation. I would say that that would become a primary issue um, if if a person is believe if a person believes that they have to speak in tongues or if you've never spoken in tongues that 
you're just not a believer. I would say that that person, uh, we're, we're not going to be in agreement on that area at all. Um, but as far as like a, a, third, a third level issue is probably going to be something more like Bible version. Okay, so we can agree. I mean, there's there's there are different versions that are represented within even the Sunday school class this morning. Is this an issue that we're going to fall out over, or we're going to disfellowship somebody because they hold to a different position? No, no, I don't believe that we do. Uh, here, here's another one. It's going to be another big word. This one was specifically for Brother Mickey. Eschatology. Okay. Eschatology. What is the timing of the Lord's return? I don't know, and you don't know. Only the Lord knows. So we can agree to disagree on these issues, still have fellowship, and as, as, as I like to say, well, where do you stand? Because there's different positions even on the millennium. You know what they are? You've got, for example, you've got pre-millennialism, which means the Lord comes at the beginning of the thousand years. You've got post-millennialism. Which, tribulation. Uh, no, no, the, no, this is, no, we're not talking about the tribulation. We're talking about the millennium here. Yeah, yeah, so no, tribulation, you can use these before that as well. But pre-millennialism means the Lord will actually set up a literal kingdom before or at the beginning of the thousand years. Post-tribulationism, which actually kind of died out. It's starting to make a comeback now, but there are many who believed in post-millennialism at the beginning of World War I. And a lot of churches taught that. It came across from German, a lot of German uh, Bible colleges and seminaries were teaching this, and they believed that the world would get better and better, and at the end of a, not a literal, but approximate thousand years, everything would be good and Jesus Christ would return. So post-millennialism is at the end of. Yeah, and then you have... Third one. The third one where it comes in the middle someplace. No, no, no. That's the tribulation. Okay? okay. Yeah, that's different. So amillennialism is going to be like Presbyterian. Um, there are a number who are within like the Reformed circles, Reformed churches of America... Uh, Reformed Baptist churches who hold to amillennialism. Amillennialism believes that there is no king, there is no kingdom at all. That Jesus Christ, at at the at a certain period in time, at the end, everything will end. Time will end, and and God will establish eternity. Okay, this one is normally associated with churches that see the New Testament church as being the same as Old Testament Israel. It's called, it's one of the terms for it is replacement theology. I do not believe that. Um, I believe that the church was not revealed until it was revealed to Paul in the New Testament when he writes of it in Ephesians. Um, so those are really the main three areas of, of, of millennialism. We actually have some folks who uh, do come here who hold to different versions of Millennialism, okay? That is a tertiary level doctrine. In other words, we can agree in the Baptist faith and message, for example, um, and I should have pulled it up, but in the 1963 and in the 2000 Baptist faith and message, it actually states that we simply believe that Jesus Christ is literally going to return at some point in the future. 
That's pretty much what it boils down to. But here's what ends up happening. If we start teaching that Jesus Christ, 88 reasons why Jesus is going to return in 1988. <laughs> yes. Or, and well, then you've got to write a new track like the one guy did, 89 reasons why Jesus is going to return in 1989. And then he finally stopped when he got it wrong two years in a row. Now, the problem is that we are too, we become too focused on the date instead of simply being prepared for the Lord's return. That's what the Bible tells us. We are supposed to be prepared for his return. We are to be watching, we are to be waiting, and we are to be working. That's the simple way to remember how is he going to come? We know he's going to come in the clouds because Acts chapter 1 makes it very clear that just as he left, he will return. That's one of the things we're going to be looking at in Revelation as we go through this. How does that, what does that look like and how should we be worshiping and preparing so that we also will be singing worthy is the lamb when we get to Revelation chapter 4? Brother Doug? It's like, well, the Bible uh, compares it to being ready to be your, your house secure for a thief because it actually says in the Bible, I'm pretty sure, I'll be corrected, that if you knew the time that the thief was coming, you wouldn't have to prepare except just before he, that thief gets there. Right. It, it, it says it, I, I think I'm paraphrasing just a little bit. First <laughs> Thessalonians chapter 5. Oh, okay. Now concerning the times and seasons, you have no need for anything to be written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Verse 4, but you are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. Now again, it's important that we use proper terminology, right? Because there are a lot of times, I remember back in the 70s and 80s, there was a series of movies called... uh, Thief in the Night. Okay, some of you may have seen those movies. It was horrible acting. It was it was horrible <laughs> theology, but they were there, and there were people who made professions of faith and who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because the films absolutely scared them to death, and they were afraid that Jesus Christ was going to come at any time, like a thief in the night, and they were going to leave a pile of clothes sitting on the floor somewhere, on the airplane, on the street corner, whatever it may have been. Then there was another series of books that came out, Left Behind by Tim LaHaye. Please, if you want to know about the end times, don't read Tim LaHaye, okay? That that makes for good reading, good bedtime stories, but that's about it, okay? There's some good stuff that was in there. But here's the point. We don't come to the book of Revelation expecting to see Apache 64 helicopters lined up in the skies, That's not what Revelation is about. Revelation is not a revelation of the end times. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Which is why you can look in every single chapter in the book of Revelation and you will see Jesus Christ high and lifted up. You will see the wonder of the fact that he is going to return again. Now, we go back to these doctrines, these levels of doctrine. If we believe eschatology where we believe on this here, again, it could depend on what we're doing with that doctrine. In other words, do we believe that a person has to be here in order to be saved? 
if we do, then we have elevated that to a primary level doctrine. Does that make sense? Okay. So in that though, what, we, what do we have to actually believe in regards to eschatology? We have to believe that he's actually returning. We have to believe that he is a God who is going to fulfill his promise. Okay? Second Peter chapter 3, for example, tells us that. I, I, I talked about this. You know, I get confused on all the different pre, post, and all. Right. It's very confusing, and then you can listen to somebody, and you just get more confused because it's contrary to this. But in the end, the thief of the night threw up a good point. I look at it not just Christ's return in the thief of the night, but how many people, believers, have died before Christ returned? Millions. Okay. How many will be here alive on this earth when he returns compared to how many already have died? Hard to know that number. Probably yeah. Yeah. probably less in a sense, maybe. Sure, sure. Think if you kind of think about it. So, I look at that as when temptation comes into your heart or you see something that tempts you, is to think about, boy, it would be embarrassing if I had a heart attack right now doing something that I shouldn't do. And, and not just who might catch you. Now you think of it in terms, I'd be embarrassed, Lord, if I was caught in a position and I died in that mm-hmm. position something doesn't honor God. And I try to apply it that way too, because you should not put yourself in a predicament where you're doing something. Dishonoring God, and you die and while dishonoring God. That's kind of embarrassing, in a sense. But sure. it's also shameful to feel that way. So I kind of look at it when I get confused. Alright, just, just don't succumb to temptation. And, you know, Whenever that comes, pray to the Lord, take this away from me. I don't want to yeah. be you know, in that position. Because you don't know when you're going to go. And Brother Diego had a close call. Yeah. Um, but if, you're, if, if the Lord should come while you're sitting, Some but, but it's not a pattern. You see what I'm saying? There's, there's a lot of different discussion. If it is an ongoing pattern. But if he came while you were sitting, you just fell into temptation, I, I, I believe you would not be embarrassed to still go into heaven. I believe Jesus would forgive you. But it's you know, but it's a situation of a particular situation. Okay. Do you see what I'm saying? It's it, it's that ongoing, I'm gonna do it anyway. So that, that's, that's actually a good point. Let's, let's talk about that for just a moment because there are a lot of people that are confused. Even within Christianity who are maybe have not been taught or just struggle to see the truth of the scriptures when it comes to assurance of salvation. Now there are many who believe that once saved, always saved. And that means, hear me out carefully here, and they believe that that means that you can live any way you want to, act any way you want to, without any fruit of the Spirit whatsoever ever being evident within your life. But because you said a little prayer, that makes you saved and you're going to heaven. I don't believe that. 
I believe that a person who truly has come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit has done a work of regeneration and has made them a new creation and has been, they have been adopted into the family of God, that person can never lose that adoption. Okay, But at the same time, when we have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is the Bible clear about that will happen within our lives? We will we will change yep absolutely so let's say that somebody comes in and they do hold that they believe that they can lose their salvation but whether through a lack of study of the scriptures or they're they're shallow in their theology or whatever it may be does that mean that we can't fellowship with that individual no okay but we're not going to have that person stand at the front and teach or minister the word of God when they don't have assurance within their own heart that they are not prepared to be able to share that with others, that the preserving power is not within you, it's with Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's not me, it's him. And so they... What you just alluded to and him saying it, the big change is, oh, I'm saved, mm-hmm. so I can sin and not lose my salvation. That's one thing. True salvation is, I don't want to sin against yep. the great God that mm-hmm. has blessed me to whatever. You see what I'm saying? The thinking is... I don't want to sin because he's God. Because the difference is we're not afraid of the commands of God now. We don't, we, don't, we don't obey God now as believers because we're afraid that he will throw down lightning bolts and you know flatten all four of our tires on a sunny morning. That's not the way God operates. We obey God now because we want to maintain that relationship that we have with him. Uh, let's use an example. Brother Mike over here. I know he looks old, but he's not this old. Um, <laughs> and Brother Mike's sitting over here, and approximately two years ago in September, I believe. October-ish. October-ish. Came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, when he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, how many of his sins were forgiven? 100. Okay, so 100% of his sins up to the point of salvation, right? <laughs> Okay, be careful. All, all, oh, so you mean the ones, if he was saved on October the 1st, you mean the sin that he would commit on October the 2nd were also forgiven? If you, uh, we got it. <laughs> I'm going to make you think here, Doug. Okay, yes, it's forgiven, but if it's brought to mind, it, I always ask, uh, you know, right? the Holy Spirit, you show me where I'm sinning so that I can confess it and try not to do it again. Right, so we're, we're living in continual sin. What? Living in continual sin with no repentance. That's, oh, the, that's, that's the difference that yeah, we're talking yeah. about. Did you have something, Brother Diego? Yeah, I was going to say, after that point, we live with the justice of God. Mm-hmm. Because he went to the cross once to be punished. Why would he punish us again? Exactly. Once. Yes. For all times, yes. yes. Uh, somebody look up Romans chapter 8, verse 1 for us. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is found no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
That's fine. So what does it say? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's what we have to remember about sin. We come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are forgiven. And going back to Brother Mike's case, when did Jesus Christ die approximately? What year? No, it was about 30 A.D. Okay. Yeah, so when, when he died on the cross, so about 30 A.D. So that means that Mike was living in the future, or would live in the future, almost 2,000 years after the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. So when Jesus died on the cross and he dies once for all, Hebrews shows this. There was one sacrifice that was given once for all, so there would be no more blood of bulls or goats that were necessary. The sacrifice was sufficient. So was that sacrifice sufficient for Mike? Yes. Okay. So if he is forgiven, that means that he has been forgiven of all of his sin, the sin up to for the first 50-something years of his life, the sins that he would commit the next day. If the Lord tarries and Brother Mike is still allowed to be alive another 15, 20 years from now, is Mike still going to sin? Yes. Yes. Is he going to be forgiven? Absolutely. No condemnation. Now the question is, can somebody continue to live abiding, as 1 John says, abiding in that sin with no remorse, with no seeming conviction of the Holy Spirit? Can that person claim to be a Christian? I don't know. Because your heart, your relationship, it has to do with God changing your heart, your desires. Yes. Right. Your yes. desires are you are wanting to serve your father. He is your father. Your own, you think about your own parents. Yep. If you love your parents, you don't want to disappoint them. Even when they're not seemingly present, you will feel, oh, my father is not going to like this. But if you don't have a father in heaven, there is no relationship. You don't care. Yeah. So 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 when we get to 1 John for example, John is speaking here about habitual sin that is not confessed, that is we do not seek forgiveness for. In other words, we are if we are at a point where we are enjoying our sin, if we are loving our sin more than we love God and the relationship that we claim to have with him, then the evidence or the fruit of that will come through the Holy Spirit changing us to be more conformed to the image of His Son. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 uh, reminds us we are to do that, the transforming by the renewing of our mind, not being conformed to the world. So if you get somebody and they say, well, I don't go to church. I don't like church. Church is full of hypocrites. Whatever the excuse is, and that person continues to live in a way from day to day where they look just like the world, they smell like the world, they talk like the world, they act like the world, they have the same desires as the world, can, according to 1 John, that person be a true believer? No. Absolutely not. It would be like, yeah. be like your father, your, your earthly father. I had a, a, a good father horrible husband to my mother, but a good father. He was fair. He, you know, mm-hmm. treated us with respect. 
to, to sin behind his back, to say, Dad, I'm not going to do that. And then go out and do it. Don't tell him. Just do it. And keep on doing it. I would have the fear all the time of my father finding out. Because he, he was fair in his punishment, too. And and the di- the only different or the main difference between an earthly father and a, that our heavenly father in that illustration is our heavenly father does know all things. Yes. He does see. He does. But the difference is that if if you are struggling with a particular sin or a particular area in your life and you want to be able to have your father to help you, your earthly father walk you through that to be able to help you as you're growing up as a young man. You go, because he can't read your mind, you have to go and actually ask him for that advice or for that help, whatever it may be. With the Lord Jesus Christ, he has filled us with his Holy Spirit, and he changes us continually. And and this is why we've asked in the last couple of messages on, on the Sunday morning, is this question. Ask yourself, have, have I changed Am I more like the Lord Jesus Christ today than I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago if if it's been that long since I've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And then go and ask somebody else within the congregation, say, do you see a change in me in the last two or three years? Do I have more of a resemblance of the one that I claim is my father? Do I look more like Jesus Christ? Let's go over here to Brother Mickey and then over here. Brother Mickey. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so salvation is a package deal. In other words, it includes, it's not just the, it's not just the saving factor that Jesus Christ has saved you. It is, it includes sanctification, it's justification, it's one day it'll be glorification where we will be outside of this sin that is within, within our body, the flesh that we are still having to deal with on a regular basis. Um, so yes, all of those things, we can't get away from them. And for example, you'll find some, uh, you'll find some even within what we mentioned earlier, the ecumenical movement, and they believe as long as they've said this little prayer or they've, they've, they've done whatever thing it is that they have been saved, they've got their ticket punched on the glory train. Now there's nothing else they have to do. Now they're in violation of Romans chapter 6. Shall we sin more so grace may abound? There are actually groups of people who actually believe that you continue to sin. The more you sin, the more grace God gives you. No, he, all the grace you're ever going to receive, you receive at the moment of salvation. Let's go over here and then over here to Brother, and then over to uh, Brother Al. What Blanco was saying, kind of reiterating what you were saying, it's a package deal. And we, with that, we, we get the Holy Spirit, and then we get the fruit of the Spirit. And like you were saying, show me if I've changed in these areas where the fruit of the Spirit is. You know, we went over that in our discipleship class, patience, uh, you know. Those are the things that as we grow or continue to grow, those things, you see more of those fruits show. Yeah. They 
Yeah. But not works for salvation, works because you have been saved. Yeah, Dad did a great series on, uh, on the book of James a while back. And um, so he sent me his notes. I'll have to give him my, uh, you know, like a referral fee or something later. But um, at any rate, seriously, he, going over this in regards to how we work out our salvation. In other words, is there anything within us? And again, First John, there's like eight or nine tests within the book of First John. Read through First John and ask yourself every time John asks a question of the believers, can you answer in the affirmative for that? Do you love God? Do you love God more than you love sin? Do you love the brethren? If you hate people within your life and you can't get past that, the Bible says you need to question your salvation. It was an abuse of divine grace when we think that Romans chapter 6, where what should we do now? We continue on sinning? No. God forbid that we do that. More grace would abound. That's what you're looking at. What does Hebrews say? Hebrews chapter 4 or chapter 5 maybe, uh, that, that speaks about a, a person who has, once they have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're not careful, what, here's what we are doing. When we deliberately live in sin, what are we saying about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ? We're saying that it's of none effect. We're saying that it's okay for me to continue to live in a body that has been paid for as the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're okay to live in that and, and to continue living in a way that does not reflect the Lord Jesus Christ, but still claim him as our Savior. Yeah. Uh, in the Catholic Church, I was raised in the Catholic Church, and they have misconstrued, work out your salvation. Mm-hmm. They have totally misconstrued. Because the Catholics believe that it is part of salvation. And they know salvation to them is totally... Sure. I mean, you've got to take the Mass because you have to literally take Jesus. And when you're receiving the communion wafer, you're actually receiving salvation. Um, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And work out your salvation is a continuous thing. Because you can go to church on Sunday and lose your salvation on Monday, and, and, and then you got... And sure. The term salvation in the Catholic Church is wrong because you can't compare it to the salvation in the Bible. Well, here's, here's what happened with Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, while he is, he is credited with starting the Reformation in early 1500s, there have always been groups of Bible-believing Christians, true Christians, who have down through the centuries who have held to the truth of Scripture. Okay, So the Reformation didn't start just in the 1500s. It, was, it preceded that. But that's one of the things he said. The just shall live by faith. Understanding that it was faith, that it is of God. This, again, coming back to monergism, solely God or synergism. How, how much of God are we going to add to what we believe in order for our salvation to be affected. In other words, how much did we do? Well, synergism says plus, 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 plus. Monergism says God alone. Period. End of story. Uh, Al? I was going to ask primary issues, primary salvation. Mm-hmm. 
do some of these issues become primary to the believer then, such as can a believer not believe in the inspiration and authority of the scripture? Can, That's going to take a lot more time yeah. in the next few minutes. <laughs> then I think some of these issues become primary. They they do. You're correct. Here's let's let's take one of them because you just mentioned this. agree to disagree I, and I, I like something my dad has stated this down through the years and I've picked up on it and shared it in my own ministry and that is this when a person comes to join the church that we are ministering in or we have gone to join a church we're not going to change that church we're going to be a part of that even in the areas in which we may be in disagreement now, what we have to determine is, are there things that are held in the doctrinal statement that are a clear violation of Scripture? If so, then we have to leave. We have to run away from that. Okay? For example, I, I could never become a part of an Anglican church because I don't believe what they believe. I, I, couldn't believe, I couldn't go and join a Methodist church, and I believe that there are many believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are in a Methodist church, or Presbyterian, or Pentecostal, or whatever. But I'm not going to go and join their churches because I don't believe what they believe. And it would become a fellowship issue if I'm sitting there listening to the ministry of the word and this person is standing at the front telling me that I can lose my salvation or that I have to have, you know, I have to speak in tongues or I have to believe in, in, in faith healing or whatever it may be in order for my salvation to be worked out. I'm not going to be able to be in fellowship with that. Now, does that mean, here's an example. I went down to visit my grandfather many years ago, um, 90, 91, somewhere in there. My wife and I hadn't been married for too long, and he was a pastor of, a missionary pastor of an Assembly of God church. He invited me to speak. No restrictions, but he allowed me to minister the word. Now, as a Baptist, I could have stood up and I could have waxed eloquent at that point about all the bad things that, you know, that, that wasn't my purpose there. My purpose was to encourage the folks and to point them to Jesus Christ. Okay? If I had an opportunity, I don't care where it is, if I had an opportunity to speak at the Vatican or the Mormon tab Tabernacle Choir or whatever, uh, I would point them to Jesus Christ. But they would know by the end of that message exactly who Jesus Christ is. The restriction is, the restriction does not come from, if the restriction is coming from the church that's telling me what I can and cannot preach when it comes to the word of God, they have violated the standard of, of, of biblical principles, okay? But if I have the ability to be, it, to me it's no different than standing on a street corner. If I'm ministering the word of God, somebody can come up and disagree with me all day long. That doesn't make them right. The question is, Am I being faithful to the scriptures and what the scriptures have to say? But let's take sufficiency. What does 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 say? Somebody want to look that up? We've got just a couple of minutes left. 2 Peter 1 3. No. Okay, I took a guess. Yep, no, no, that's a good that's a good passage. 2 Peter 1 3. 
2 Peter 1.3. Okay. There are many, even in Baptist circles today, who do not hold to the sufficiency of Scripture to answer your question directly. My question then is this. If the Word of God is not sufficient, if somebody comes to me and they're struggling in their marriage or in their work relationship or in, in the familial relationships that they have between uh, 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 parents and children or grandchildren or whatever it may be, either I've got the answer in God's word to be able to give them or I don't. And if we don't believe in the sufficiency of scripture, what book am I going to pick up to be able to teach them and tell them, well, this is the answer. And this is where you have a problem with, for example, Christian psychology. A lot of Christian psychologists, (coughs) excuse me, so-called Christian psychologists have abandoned the word of God in favor of a a, a man-made book that says, well, we don't talk about sin. It's not sin. It's just an issue. It's just a whatever it may be. No, we need to get back to the standard that says man is separated from God. There's a holiness of God that we have to be able to attain to. And apart from Jesus Christ, you and I can't achieve that. That's why marriages fail. That's why kids and parents have problems with one another. That's why there's rebellion in the home or rebellion in the workplace because we have violated the sufficiency of Scripture. So does it become a primary issue? I believe that if a person does not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, I don't believe we can have fellowship on any kind of ministry level. Yep. And, absolutely. But when, once we understand these doctrines, the question is, do we continue to maintain or do we continue to study? Here, here is what a lot of people do when it comes to belief system or their theology. Uh, somebody comes up and they say, well, what do you believe? Well, I believe, I believe like my church believes. Well, what does my church believe? Well, they believe like my pastor believes. Well, what, am I, what does your pastor believe? Well, he believes just like me. And it just becomes like this vicious circle because we really don't know and why fully 25% of those who have moved into the cults like JWs or the LDS churches, why they have abandoned their... 25% of them are coming from Baptist evangelical churches. Because they don't know their doctrine. They don't understand the importance of theology. That goes back to the verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for, what's the first word? Doctrine. Doctrine. Reproof. Correction. Instruction in righteousness. When a church gets to the point where this isn't the first thing that's opened, you have a failing church. That's true. Same with Mormons. I've debated with Mormons, told them their theology, and they go, well, I don't believe that. But it's what, the, it's what their church believes. Sorry. You woke us up. We're awake. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mickey. 
That's why so many people from Baptist background are coming into other denominations because they don't have a clue what they really believe. They don't have a clue. Right. When I first moved to Wyoming in 83, I worked at the golf course in Powell. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys that worked there, he was a Mormon. He says, I'm a Jack Mormon. I said, well, don't tell me what that means. He says, well, do you know why you take two Mormons fishing with you? They won't drink their beer. Your beer. <laughs> you keep them honest. That's all. It's not like Baptist, I know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but you think about it. People do not have a clue because they've never opened the scripture up and read and studied. No. What they get on Sunday morning, it's all they're going to get, some of them. Sure. I, unfortunately. They come on Sunday morning. No. It's, it's, it's it, great, but it's not enough. You know what? When I mention, when I talk about like our prayer meeting on Wednesday night, or I talk about like like Sam's doing a great job in in the discipleship class on Sunday night, and by the way, something to look forward to. Uh, Brother Al is actually going to do a short series coming up in starting in September. Uh, is going to be doing a short series in the Sunday school class, um, and then when he comes back, Lord willing, he's going to do a short series on Daniel. I'm actually really looking forward to that, um, but. One of the things that, that we have to keep asking ourselves is if, if God is the one who has saved us, if God is the one who is keeping us, if God is the one who preserves us, if God is the one who has made it possible for us to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ, for us to be justified, for us to be, you could throw out all these long, big theological terms, doesn't it make sense that he's going to give us the answers to find that somewhere? And if we can't find it here, where can we find it? So either the scriptures are sufficient or they're not. And and this is why I have I have counseled and I have and I'm encouraged you be careful even when you go into the so-called Christian bookstores because a lot of what they're offering is 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 false. It's false teaching. You can find every ecumenicalism again you can find every kind of work from every different uh, author even the one that we've got here in town you know how big the theology section is the biblical theology section is in our in in our store it's one shelf in the entire store sure but the goods that they're selling are just that a bill of goods because what they are doing is not changing lives if, if your life is not changing from the ministry of the word and what you are hearing, whether it's in Sunday school class, even with our young people, I have stressed this even with the teachers who are downstairs. You should be teaching your children to the point when they are in your classes that they are seeing more of Jesus Christ every week. <coughs> Excuse me. That's the way it should always be. So... I hope that uh, we're going to go ahead and close for this morning. I hope that that encourages you. And as we prepare for worship uh, for our next se uh, session in uh, the book of Revelation, I pray that you'll be encouraged this morning. And I'm going to have to go get some water. Let's pray. Thank you, thank you, Father, for a new day. Thank you for those who came and for the participation. We ask that every heart would be encouraged. And may we see Jesus Christ high and lifted up today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Abigail, can you get me some water, please?